Our lives have been turned upside down by this pandemic, but we're going to get through this. No peace! No justice! No peace! Breonna Taylor! We're going to know how to be resilient and how to bounce back and how to adapt to whatever life is going to throw at us. Let's use this as an opportunity to create a system that's better than the one that we've been in for so long. We're just trying to think outside of the box for a tough time like this. You can't get this wrong because it's never been done before. All you can do is try. You make a mistake, you fix the mistake, you move forward. That's where we are. There's an opportunity here to change how we do education. So how do we change education? That big question doesn't have easy answers. But now's the time to dig in, to listen to each other and to work on solutions. Because the decisions we are making right now are already determining our future. Plug into GA's new podcast, Bright Future Start Now. We'll talk with real change makers about real issues. And we need you to be a part of the conversation. Good afternoon, I'm Sharon Contreras, the superintendent of the Guilford County Schools, and I am going into my sixth year as the superintendent of Guilford County Schools and my 11th year as a superintendent, and that is amazing to me. You're breaking all the curves yeah. on that. <laughs> uh, and I'm Joe Blosser, I'm a professor of religion and philosophy and the Culp Director of Service Learning at High Point University. And I get to support our uh, public schools through being a board member of the Guilford Education Alliance and its task force in High Point called the High Point Schools Partnership. Outstanding. Uh, Dr. Contreras, I'm so excited to get to talk to you today. Um, and I appreciate you taking time, as you so often do, to talk to us and to members of our community about all the amazing, challenging, hard, innovative, creative things happening in Guilford County Schools. Um, to say that what, like the last 17 months has been challenging, crazy, a perfect storm of challenges feels kind of like an understatement. I mean, we can go down the list of health challenges related to the pandemic, facility issues, technology gaps, remote learning, like the list goes on and on. The things that our teachers and our parents and our kids have worked to overcome in this time has been incredible. Um, and now we're watching the news, we're seeing the Delta variant sweeping through unvaccinated populations, and even the future looks more complicated than maybe we thought it might just a month or so ago. Um, so I'm just so thankful that you're here to talk to us about kind of what we've learned, but really where we're going and what what our kind of future looks like. Absolutely. You know, it's absolutely a joy to talk about my passion and to have the opportunity to speak to the public about the great things happening in public schools, the challenges we face. I speak all the time and I'm asked, you know, are there other ways that we can get to the public? Because the only way we hear about public schools is through the media. And um, that's problematic for the public who wants to support public schools and may only hear a story that it's being sensationalized. So this is a great opportunity. And I just want to thank you and thank the Guilford Education Alliance for providing yet another opportunity to share the great things happening in Guilford County Schools. 
Well, one of the things I love talking to you about education is because while you're you're this professional, you're running Guilford County Schools, every time I talk to you, there is this infectious passion that comes, I mean, from your own story and from your own work. And so I just love that because it's very clear that this is not a job for you, that this is a yeah. calling um, at its deepest. So I, as we kind of look toward what this next year looks like, I'm curious all the things that you've learned in the past 17 months about how to completely flip education on its head and the snap of a finger uh, to go to remote learning, all of that. What, as you look into the next school year, what do you think it, it looks like? What have we learned that you want to carry forward into this next year? I think the number one thing I learned is that we are much more capable of innovation than any of us imagined. And we are so used to saying something can't be done. That thing can't be done. Uh, you know, I think of that book, Cage Busting Leadership, where we're stuck in the cage. We can't do this. We can't do that. And we learn we absolutely can, and we can do it much more quickly than uh, any of us imagined. And uh, our teachers showed that, our principals, uh, our support staff showed we can uh, quickly turn things around to support not only our students, but our families and our community. And we did that by um, galvanizing the community around schools to make sure that students had uh, the support they needed, the tools they needed. We made sure we galvanized around the the first responders so that we could support them initially when they had to get to work and they had no one to watch their children. I believe we were the first district in the state to open the schools uh, for the children of first responders and to make sure we had uh, learning hubs before they were even called learning hubs and to make sure that uh, they were uh, able to respond to this COVID pandemic. Uh, So anything is possible if we sit and problem solve together. But I learned not one of us has the answer, but together we do have good solutions. And it's a lesson that without all of the restrictions as well, And public education is just, I think there's so much bureaucracy, so many restrictions at every level, at the federal level, the state level, local levels. When you say, all of a sudden, we're going to take that away so that we can quickly provide services for children and families, it's amazing um, the innovation possible. And public schools uh, in our region, in our state, across the country showed what they were able to do. It's unfortunate, however, that as soon as we saw we were sort of out of um, the red area, that immediately we started putting restrictions back in place. 
And I was hopeful and hoping that the state and federal government wouldn't do that, that they would see the incredible innovation that occurred and say, oh, we need this in public education. Let's let's make things less bureaucratic, less restrictive. But I'm starting to see more restrictions, not less. Yeah, they're coming back. I mean, you had the, the kind of titanic of a giant school system operating like a speedboat. That's and right. able to change and maneuver and um, you know, it sounds like what you're saying is in the next year that may some of those restrictions are coming back may not have as much flexibility to that's, innovate as as we've had. That's right, and I think that how we solve problems at uh, the government level, and when I say government, I mean the general assembly, congressional levels, is to try to. Um, find one fix for everyone. So what works in, you know, a small district, what works in uh, Eastern Carolina is not the right fix for the Piedmont region or for, you know, the Triad region or for Wake or Charlotte. And I, I wish that our officials would see that and stop trying to find the fix mm. for schools and allow school districts and communities to come up with fixes uh, for their communities, as we did during the pandemic, and actually come up with uh, legislation that allows for more flexibility, not coming up with uh, legislation that says this is how every school district in the state is going to address each problem. It's not helpful at all. Well, uh, you did so many kind of new innovative things this last year. I'm curious if you share, you know, one of the big successes, like something that, you know, we're all been talking about student learning loss. It was really a loss of opportunity for students to learn. I don't want to blame the students for it, right? But Guilford County Schools did a number of things to try to provide students opportunities this year uh, that were creative and different, trying to mitigate the kind of regular classroom experience that they might have lost at some points in time. Can you speak to some of the, the things that Guilford County Schools did and some successes that you saw? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, first I want to say the impact of the pandemic on students will be far more significant and long-term for students who are facing inequities before the pandemic. And teachers and families require, you know, different supports and wide range of options. So, we came up with a tutoring core, and we are using graduate students from North Carolina A&T, graduate students in mathematics and engineering and computer science. Uh, and, you know, North Carolina A&T graduates more black engineers than any university in the world. We have to be really proud of that. Um, yeah. So we hired them to serve our high school students who have multiple risk factors. And we started with the students who are incarcerated. And many forget that we have lots of students in the juvenile detention center who needed to be educated as well. In fact, were required by law, and they are the most vulnerable students. Then we used a formula to determine who else had risk factors. Most of them are Black and Latino males. Mm -hmm. And we started 
uh, placing those students with the graduate assistants. Then we started working with High Point University, UNCG, and North Carolina A&T to pay um, the undergraduate students to work with high school students who are at risk. And High Point University has a model where students must provide service. So we didn't even have to pay those students. And they have been providing providing tutoring uh, services to students. And then we started paying our high school students uh, $10 an hour and giving high school credit, a half credit per semester to high school students who are in AP math classes or IB math classes to provide tutoring to middle school students who were struggling. And we were able to hire 200 high school students. So we're providing tutoring services to hundreds and hundreds of GCS students who are struggling. And this is a model that we can extend beyond the pandemic because at least half of our students were struggling prior to the pandemic in math were behind mm-hmm. um, their peers. We also created a model for learning hubs in the evenings, on Saturdays, even Sundays. And we allowed our high schools to create that model based on when they thought they could bring students in and when they could get support staff to come in uh, so that students who were at risk of not graduating, the 12th graders or 9th graders who would not become 10th graders, 10th graders who wouldn't become 11th graders, 11th graders who were behind, just to make sure they completed the school year and received all their credit so they weren't falling behind. They created these learning hubs for them to come in, use technology, uh, get high-speed internet because that's a huge problem in our community. And we received nearly a million dollars from the new teacher project, TNTP. Wow to support that. And we've been receiving other philanthropic support because of that model. So this is something we're going to keep honing, to keep learning from, uh, so that we can continue this uh, in future years. We want every student that needs a tutor to receive that additional support so that no student falls behind. So you're finding that near-peer tutoring to really have big impacts. That's right. That's right. And we've seen some of the research. I believe the research says that uh, tutoring can be more effective than 80% of other academic interventions, and that high-dosage tutoring or tutoring that occurs with regular frequency, two to six hours per week, is more likely to positively impact student outcomes uh, than other interventions. So this could transform public education if we can make this work and make certain that we have high-quality tutors and an ongoing funding source for this. We just have to make sure that we can keep this going. Sure. And I mean, that seems to fit so well with what the workplace is is looking for these days, right? They want people that are able to network and work in teams and collaborate with 
other people and uh, help to train them up and what they're doing. It seems to connect exactly to the kind of life skills that I know we're teaching at High Point University that we want our college students to leave with, but also what we're seeing in the workplace. And that's really important. And the other thing it's doing for us is introducing another generation of young people to the teaching profession that might not have been thinking about teaching at all, that suddenly is saying, wow, you know, I really enjoy this. I want to consider teaching. Uh, And we've had quite a few students say, I would have never considered teaching, but now I'm thinking about it. So this is a really great initiative. And we're going to have a formal evaluation of our tutoring initiative each year. And even if we don't get all of the results we want at once, we're not going to stop because it's a promising practice. Yeah, well, my goodness, if you can convince some more people to become teachers, that's a, a pipeline, certainly in our state. We we need more and more teachers. Uh, yes, the pandemic indeed. has certainly made it difficult, I, I would think, to, to find enough teachers for all the classrooms. Um, you know, another intervention that is really different this year is summer school. Um, and that, as you mentioned, government across the state, like, summer school is looking different everywhere, but specifically for us, we usually have, what, 1,200, maybe 1,500 students in summer school, and we're upwards of 15,000 this year or something like that. Absolutely. So the last time we hosted summer school, we only had 1,200 students, and that's for multiple reasons. One, we never have enough funding Secondly, um, usually summer school is for a few hours a day. We now have summer school for a full day, thanks to ESSER funding. Um, We have lots of teachers participating because we are paying them as professionals. I think um, many people would be shocked and appalled to see um, that our teachers who have bachelor's degrees and master's degrees have to work at the mall during in the summer or at Starbucks um, and work multiple jobs just to make ends meet. But this year, we were able to increase their pay to $40 an hour. And so most of our teaching positions for summer school were filled um, within one week of posting. Uh, So we were able to provide summer uh, programming to 16,000 students. Now, about 2,000 of them did not come regularly. And I would say that was to be expected. I think the principals are really trying, but some students are having difficulty getting into that routine again after mm-hmm. not being in school after 17 months. So we're really um, going to have, a, it's going to be a heavy lift and there's going. it's going to require a lot of additional supports in terms of working with families to get students back into school and getting accustomed to coming to school every day, but still to have the great majority of that 16,000 coming to school regularly, it's going to be very helpful. Did that make up for all of the learning loss? No, it's going to take some years uh, to make up for the amount of schooling that students missed over time. And the teachers did a great job, but it was just too long not to be in school. And teachers were learning how to use the technology 
We didn't have all of the technology. We didn't have high-speed connectivity. Uh, and it just showed so many shortcomings, infrastructure shortcomings in this mm. nation. Um, but we did the best we could. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the school districts and school systems across the nation um, bore the brunt of the negativity from the public and parents who really didn't understand that these were infrastructure issues, funding issues, and uh, superintendents bore the brunt of it, board members, sometimes teachers, not understanding that it was nothing short of a miracle that we were able to uh, even get online and uh, were able to do what we did uh, within these 17 months. Uh, But I hope that everyone now will advocate that public schools uh, have technology, that teachers have digital resources, that students have digital resources, and most of all, that every American has access to high-speed internet in 2021. This is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you're naming like all these things that we expected out of educators this year, that suddenly they had to become technological whizzes. They had to be social workers. They had to know all of the latest health guidance. They had to know how to do remote learning. Are, are, I mean, is it fair for us to be asking all of this of educators? And where do you see, what is the community more broadly need to be doing if we want to see success in our kids and in our school system? What What's the role for the wider community? Well, I think for those who have children, I think they saw how complicated great teaching really is and what it takes to engage students, what a great lesson looks like, uh, how many resources it takes to Uh, create a lesson. And I think for those parents, many were sympathetic. But I think the community needs to understand that schools don't look like they did when we attended school. So if you expected teachers to be able to pivot to uh, remote instruction without having any technology in their classrooms and having never had access to digital resources and never having been able to practice teaching remotely, then your expectations were far too high and uh, just too much, just too much to expect. And um, we have to pay for um, the resources and the kind of educational system that we want uh, for our children. Uh, We can't get angry with our teachers and with the school boards and the superintendents if the general assemblies don't adequately fund public education uh, and the school systems aren't able to then provide all the students with the technology. And we receive um, so many uh, very negative and sometimes nasty emails. Why don't the students have laptops? Because they weren't funded. 
you know, why don't they have devices? Why don't they have iPads? Because they weren't funded. Uh, and it showed that we have very little understanding in communities about how schools are funded, what average per pupil funding is in the nation, what one state contributes versus another, where North Carolina stands in this, how we pay our teachers, how we pay our bus drivers, what we were expecting of our school nutrition workers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people were saying, you know, uh, you know, school should be closed, but we want the kids to eat. Well, that means you need to pay premium pay to the school nutrition workers who are primarily poor black and brown women, you know, and but they carried a brunt. I mean, they, they were standing the out on the it. corners, handing out meals, handing out all throughout meals, the pandemic, millions of meals throughout the pandemic. Uh, but I don't think we think that deeply about who's being impacted uh, by all of these things. Uh, but we need to start thinking about this uh, as we move forward into the next school year, because there is a variant out there, this Delta variant that's out mm-hmm. there, and that's not the only one. So in truth, I hope it doesn't happen, but we could end up remote again. <laughs> And we got to take all those lessons that we've learned about we've got to come together. We can't expect the schools to just fix it all on their own, That's right? right. That the community's got to step up. Thank you for listening to part one of our interview with Guilford County Schools Superintendent, Dr. Sharon Contreras. This was such an important conversation that it continues with the part two. Please keep listening to learn more about school facilities, the intersection of education and democracy, and just how the parable of the lost sheep factors in.